0: hi everybody welcome back to talks with miri so my apologies for the hiatus but i am coming back and i'm going to do another show very soon to make up for the long gap and i'm very excited for today's episode because it's you know serious stuff back to discussing real world issues which i really do enjoy doing as well and i got a lot of opinions going in this episode and a lot of moments which i feel very touching and very influential so i cannot wait to get this show on the road tackling the list of instagram requests sex work was one of them and i agree with the importance and the need to discuss it with people so i'd always like prioritize doing it but now seems like the perfect time i don't know why it just it feels right to do it now and in order to actually discuss sex work as usual you need to understand what sex work is and according to the world health organization sex workers are women men and transgendered people Who receive money or goods in exchange for sexual services, and who consciously define those activities as income-generating even if they do not consider sex work as their occupation. The words women, men, and people include sexually active adolescents. Children who have not reached the age of puberty may also engage in sex work. The term sex worker recognizes that sex work is work. Prostitution, on the other hand, has connotations of criminality and immorality. Many people who sell sexual services prefer the term sex worker and find prostitute demeaning and stigmatizing, which contributes to their exclusion from health, legal, and social services. This was also according to Open Society. Now, when studying this and looking at it, five different types of prostitution came up. There was the direct prostitution so this is the stereotypical one destitute area woke up to the car your main source of income and there's usually a drug dependency there's indirect prostitution where prostitution is more of a side hustle not the main hustle you had trafficking and slavery male and transgender sex work and child prostitution now looking at this historically way 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 back when namely you know like seventh century eighth century round about then prostitution was a hereditary profession So this is just something that you were likely to be born into. And a good example of this is modern-day India's Devadasis. Not olden day because olden day they were literally the the definition of independent women. They didn't know anybody, anything. They didn't need men for money. They had the liberty to choose who they wished to sleep with, etc. But modern-day, they've turned it into a, a form of sex worker union type vibe where essentially they're prostitutes doesn't matter how old you are how young you are how old you are and majority of the children used as sex workers have been forced into becoming Devadasis due to the household just simply requiring an income and literacy rates remain low amongst these children it creates that whole poverty cycle where the children now are being forced to do this. They don't go to school. Then they can only get, you know, menial jobs. And the parents now need the child's help. Or the child has not had a, a baby and doing this type of work. And a whole bunch of social effects that, like, self-explainably contribute to to, kind of maintaining the poverty cycle that this keeps you in. And it's it's so common that literally... The families obviously are in a lower income bracket, so their houses may be a one room. And they will wait outside while the the Devadasi, the young child, the young girl, is, you know, performing sexual favors with these men. And what's interesting is that this practice has been banned for over 20 years. But in 2013, there was reported to be 450,000 Devadasis in India. And these girls usually start this practice around the age of 10, 12, but definitely by 15 They're in there, and they don't get any education about any forms of contraceptives, STD, and this promotes stuff like AIDS and health issues, and eventually, like I said prior to this, end up giving birth to a child, end up not going to school, and it maintains the poverty cycle. Now in assessing both sides, it's obvious that not everyone, namely females in this case, share the belief that sex work should be something that we, for lack of a better word, normalize. And I looked at this and I found an article by Claudia Dumuro, Muro and she was expressing the opinion that legalizing sex work is a misogynist's dream come true. It reinforces the idea that a woman's body exists solely for the pleasure of others and usually not in her own time. And her article went on to mention how one former prostitute, who now runs a clinic helping those still in the profession, has basically reiterated that none of her patients have expressed a desire to return to the sex work industry. And even those that initially thought it was fun and modern and, you know, was the modern girl's way to earning an income, when introduced to the reality of trying it for themselves, we're not really into it and she concluded by saying what a woman does with her body is her choice including how often she wants to have or abstains from sex the difference between this choice and sex work is just that there's very little choice involved it's not a profession one applies to or dreams of becoming now, in support of being against sex work, I'm going to read a story by Emily Evelyn. I woke up, still drunk, on a thrifted couch in a punk house living room. Aaron and I shook off the sleep in the shower, and when he touched me, I felt like vomiting. He always wanted sex. I always had sex, but rarely wanted it. Aaron, cut it out. Come on, Emily, it's been a week. I submitted and fell to my knees, praying for him to finish before my jaw locked. It was a work day, and as usual, Aaron was robbing me of the sexual energy I was saving for my johns. I finally swallowed and stood up, bruised from kneeling in the empty tub. I dried myself with someone's damp, mildewy towel and brushed my teeth with a spare toothbrush. Aaron's five-year-old son, Leo, tapped on the door. He was something out of a fairy tale, a radiant woodland creature whose innocence disturbed me. Papa, I'm hungry. Aaron left the bathroom to fry thick cut bacon for Leo. I locked the door and spit blood in the sink. My reflection disturbed me. There were silver dollar packets beneath my eyes and my cheeks had puffer fished with beer bloat. I applied mascara and eyeliner that I had stolen from Walgreens, buttoned up the pink shirt I'd worn every day that week, slid into blue jeans borrowed from a friend and strapped on high heels from the Salvation Army. At noon, Aaron drove me to the Bloomington Super 8 in our broken blue station wagon as Leo mumbled about hemlock and Inuits from the back seat. Outside of the motel, Leo pointed to the pool and begged me to take him swimming. He said I was a lifeguard and I didn't have the heart to correct him. So I told him I was sorry, but the pool was closed for the season. Aaron parked by the dumpsters on the side of the building and kissed me on the cheek. Bye, Emily. We see you soon, Leo said. I ignored him. I stumbled across the gravel, walkway to the main office. A bell dinged when I opened the door, but the receptionist didn't greet me. There was an unspoken agreement between us, if she didn't look at me, she wouldn't have to acknowledge that she knew what I was doing, that I would be checking out in two hours with smeared makeup and disheveled hair. I placed my elbows on the counter. A single room, please. One night. I gave her $59 in cash, she gave me a key and I turned left at the desk, holding my breath to fend off the smell of stale booze and cigarettes. Room 57. I turned on the lights and stripped down to my thrifted lingerie and heels. Professor Mike knocked at 1.15. He was a theater instructor at the nearby university who insisted I use the professor part of his name. He was a squirmy-like ferret and always showered before saying anything more than, Hello! I held my breath and the water stopped running, afraid he would spring from the bathroom and stab me. Professor Mike was one of many Johns with pedophilic tendencies. He loved that I was 19. He called me his sweet baby. During our sessions, he rapidly oscillated between porn star and protective father mode, pulling and then smoothing my hair, kissing and then biting my neck. He called himself a prostitute connoisseur, a title from his inability to sleep with blonde college students and prided himself on his knowledge of sex work etiquette. He knew how to tip, he knew when to check the clock, he knew to set the money on the table, he knew he wanted me to suck his cock. Professor Mike took the full 90 minutes and countless repetitions of, oh yeah, baby, come for me, to orgasm. When he finally did, he spasmed like a water mammal. When our session ended, I returned the key to the front desk, the shame sitting on my tongue like morning breath. Aaron was parked by the dumpsters again, smiling from the front seat of the station wagon. He leaned in for the type of kiss i would charged $50 for. I blocked his lips with my hand and told him to take me to the liquor store. It was time, once again, to transform. I always hate prostitution. It started off as an exercise in reclaiming power over my body, giving me the role of puppet master and casting Johns as my paying audience. Aaron shattered this fantasy. I met Aaron, whose name, like Leo's, have been changed to protect their privacy, in Bloomington, Indiana, two months before I turned 19. My brother had recently been declared a missing person, having run away from the boarding school he was sent to against his will. I was accused of helping him escape. I dropped out of Hampshire College in December and moved back to Chicago to live with my parents, whose suspicions about me continued to build. In early January, my computer disappeared from my bedroom. One night when my mother was asleep, I packed my hiking bag, stole a handful of bills from my father's wallet, and ordered a goodbye letter on my walls in black chalkboard paint. It was my turn to run away. I was loosely homeless for nine months before meeting Aaron. I moved from a friend's bed in Hyde Park to an anarchist squat in Logan Square then back to Hyde Park where I housed at a friend's condo while he was in Israel. In mid-January, I accompanied a roommate from the squat to Bloomington, where we stayed with fellow anarchists at a house called Gangster's Paradise. I noticed Aaron from across the room at a dumpster dive party on the first night. He was tall, athletic, and slightly clueless, a younger replica of my father. I asked a friend about him. She said Aaron was 28, only ate meat, and had a five-year-old son. He was six feet and three inches of bad news. That night, Aaron and I had sex on the pullout couch while our friends were on the floor a few feet away. I woke up to his shirtless torso pressed against me. I wanted to kiss and uppercut him simultaneously, but chose to override the latter urge to in favor of potential protection. He was a Clyde in meat of a bunny. I was a child in need of a daddy. I remained motherless until I met a 23-year-old lesbian who I'll call Beth. We introduced ourselves on the porch of Gangster's Paradise, where she supported her whiskey-drunk self on the railing with one hand and scissored a cigarette with the other. She was wearing a fanny pack around her beer belly and had tucked her dread mullet into a neon strap-back hat. When I asked her what she did for a living, she told me she had sex with men for money. Is it hard? Nah, no, I don't think about it anymore. It's good money, man. She stuck her tongue in my mouth, and we had sex at her house, another punk house on the same block. While Aaron slept on a mattress in her basement, when we finished, I joined Aaron in his sleeping bag, drunk and turned off, but too passive to tell him that I wasn't in the mood for blowjobs. This pattern continued for months. My evening started in Beth's bedroom, getting head that I didn't want, and ended in Aaron's crotch, giving head that I didn't offer. Eventually. Beth grew attached and began crying to me after sex she said she loved me she begged me not to leave her bed she said that if I left then I didn't love her back of course I loved her she was one half of my adopted family I began prostituting in Chicago a few weeks later under the pretense of monetary desperation. The truth was far more Freudian. Since leaving home, I had given my body to anyone who expressed interest in it, desperate for safety and validation for something to prove that I was alive and worth being with. Sex work felt like a natural next step. I stuck strictly to fetish work for the first few months, I sold a pair of underwear to a man in a blockbuster parking lot, hiding an open switchblade in my sleeve. I sold my second pair of underwear at an intersection near my parents' house, my little brother and his friend waiting in the backseat of my car. I burned a man's feet with cigarettes, I spit in the face of an advertising executive, I peed in a cup for a man who said he would drink me with a cigar. Sex work in Chicago felt glamorous. Johns took me to upscale hotels, bought me dinner, and gave me wine, weed, and compliments. They respected my boundaries. Indiana was a different story. When my relationship with Aaron intensified, I agreed to drain him in Bloomington, despite the fact that he was homeless and mostly transient. I found Craigslist jobs immediately, both to support us and because I was changed to the rush of whoring. It was dirty, it was dangerous. When I got stuck in a disassociative muck, Prostitution woke me up. Indiana men were grimy. They were fat, they smelled awful, and they were selfish. They didn't take me to upscale hotels or offer me wine or respect my limitations. They pushed for penetrative sex, ass slapping, anal, and facials. One of the Indiana men showed me the extent of my powerlessness. He was a Craigslist find who said he wanted a blowjob in his truck. Aaron walked with me from Gangsters paradise to the Coles parking lot across the train tracks. We arrived early in order for him to tag the resting freight train with paint markers. When the white truck pulled up, Aaron hung back, watching me wobble across the parking lot in my strappy heels. The man got out and said we were going in the store, that he wanted to buy me a lacy white bra. He was probably 60 years old, probably invested in a fantasy of taking his daughter bra shopping probably more turned on by my childlike breasts than he wanted to admit. I shook in the checkout lane hoping the cashier would notice my discomfort and save me. When we left Coles, the man brought me back to his truck and told me to get in. Once I complied he turned the key and took off announcing that we were going back to his house instead of staying in the parking lot. I said nothing. He unzipped his pants and placed his hand on the back of my neck. I took a final look at Aaron was still sitting by the train tracks. Was he smiling? Did he wave goodbye? Was he worried? The man pushed my head towards his lap and told me that from then on, I should call him daddy. With Aaron's permission, Beth and I began working together that spring. Deciding that we would be safer and more successful as a team. I was a craigslist hustler, she was a sexual chameleon. Before jobs, we laid on the bed at the super 8 and laughed about the fluids we were probably rolling in. Beth drew pictures of me and I counted money, splaying the bills out on the floral comforter and grinning. We joked about previous Johns, like the one whose cum shot three feet in the air, causing us to press our lips together to stifle the sound of our laughter. I sometimes pranced around in Beth's long black wig, blowing kisses to the mirror and pressing my childlike breasts together, lost in a daydream of stripping instead of having sex for money. I liked being someone else, concealed beneath thick synthetic hair. If I was someone else, my real self could hover above the body that was licked and kissed and groped and broken. While John's moulded me like jello, I composed mental grocery lists, planned shopping trips, and lay dead. Aaron picked us up when we were done, and we spent the remainder of our evenings getting drunk and high and telling stories from the day, trying to attach humour to them. I needed to make sex work sound easy and rewarding. I played the feminist card, desperately attempting to convince myself that prostitution gave me power over myself and my body. I was my own boss, I had no pimp, I was strong and in charge, and if I worked at McDonald's or Starbucks, I would still be metaphorically whoring myself, but for $290 less an hour. I told myself I was special. I cherished my secret. It created distance between me and the people I found threatening. I was powerful. I was in control. I owned my own real estate. Bullshit. Beth broke my heart that summer. She had one rule while we were working together. She could eat me out, but not the other way around. I figured it was trauma related. She, like me, was a rape victim. So I respected it. But when we had a customer who demanded it, pushing my head towards her spread legs, I glanced up at Beth, panicking. She was silent. I went for it. After the session, she yelled at me, making me promise to never do it again. The day before Aaron and I left for Seattle, Beth handed me a half-empty PBR and asked me to join her on the porch. I have to tell you something, man. Please don't be mad. She was looking away from me, first at the grass, then at the street, then at her hands. I have herpes. After seven months of intimacy, weeks of sharing Johns and daily arguments over vague boundaries, she had finally told me the truth. It came too late. I looked up the symptoms and realized that the night I was woken up by a bout of projectile vomiting meant I had contracted something. Not from the filthy John, but from my friend, my lover. My surrogate mother. Aaron broke out in blisters on our first day in Seattle. Months later, I would learn that I had contracted oral herpes and unknowingly passed it on to Aaron when I gave him head. I had already started staying away from prostitution, viewing my primary asset as contaminated. I had nothing left. The end of my relationship with Beth and the hiatus from my career exposed me to a hideous truth. I had been trapped in a trauma cycle dating back to my youth the hands that typed out Craigslist ads, the legs that spread in strangers' cars, and the mouth that took in wrinkled flesh. Those things weren't mine. They belonged to my past. They belonged to the part of me that still felt voiceless, choiceless, and desperate for something resembling love from men who had none to offer. When our session ended, I returned the key to the front desk, the shame sitting on my tongue like a morning breath. My freedom was a facade. I hated myself. I hated the warm PBRs and the cheap tequila shots and the grape-flavored blunts. I hated the fat men who grunted when they fucked. I hated Professor Mike and the man in the white truck. I hated blowjobs and anal bees and high heels and my bruised body. I hated the motels. I hated the anarchists and the glorification of hooliganism, shoplifting and prostitution. I hated Aaron and his stolen flank stakes and his complacency and ignorance and immaturity. He was nothing but another John. I gave him sex in exchange for safety. I was trudging through life with Newports dangling from my lips and thousands of secrets swirling through my head, half dead. But I still needed him. Aaron was my ticket out of Bloomington. and I were hiding in the trees bordering a Chicago rail yard, squatting there for hours until sometime past midnight he grabbed my elbow and hissed, run. I sprinted after him, unprepared for the enormity of the adrenaline rush and mimicked his movements as he ducked behind a train car. He instructed me to wait with our packs as he weaved around the train, looking for a big enough space for two stowaways. Three cars down, he turned back, grabbed his packs and told me to follow him. Get in. The car Aaron chose had a two-foot wide ledge with a gate top and a metal bottom, leaving just enough room for our bodies to slide between. The remaining six-foot space between the ledge and the shipping container was floorless, save for two criss-crossing bars which meant the slightest misstep would kill us. It was my first time on a freight train and Aaron had promised to keep me safe. He didn't tell me that riding in a floorless, freight car was considered riding suicide. He didn't ask if I wanted to put my life at risk. Instead, he had me crawl into the two-foot cubby and then scrunched in next to me, covering us with a tarp and tying our bodies to the ledge so we wouldn't fall onto the tracks while we were sleeping. I woke up alone in the cubby. We were somewhere along the Mississippi, 9 hours from Bloomington, from Beth, from the Johns, and the motels in the degradation. My body was stamped with mayflies and grime. But I was free, going 60 miles per hour towards Seattle. And then I looked down. Aaron was hopping back and forth between the crisscrossing bars, gambling with his life and laughing about it. He had brought me as close as possible to death, forcing my reliance upon his rope, his tarp, and his knowledge of the rails for my survival. I was still his hostage. 36 hours later, Aaron and I were arrested in Haveri, Montana, for train hopping. We spent four days in jail, hitched to Seattle, and crashed on couches for a month. It was two months before I finally stopped riding suicide. I broke up with Aaron and moved to the East Coast. I landed a job as a full-time barista in Rochester, New York, where I enrolled in school, signed a lease, and started therapy. Now, in favor for sex work, a lot of people's main argument is that sex work should not be criminalized. And this is because the criminalization of sex work just puts sex workers' health and safety at risk because it essentially forces it to go underground. So everything happens under a blanket. Everything from sale and purchase happens under a blanket. And criminalization makes it harder for them to negotiate with their clients or work with other sex workers in a safe environment because... I mean, what are you going to do? You don't want to go to jail. Some don't even carry condoms because it can be used as evidence, as, um, as evidence of prostitution. And a lot of sex workers do report extreme violence, extreme harassment from clients, managers, police, the works. And criminalization makes it difficult to report these harassments and violent situations. Because you go and you report this and you're vulnerable to incarceration. You get more abuse. Um, abuse thrown at you and it just it it creates this still dark world whereby violence and the harshness and the hush-hush of um sex workers rights are still pushed and I feel like the more humane way of looking at it is even if if we don't agree with the choices one makes we should essentially at least offer people the opportunity to be in an environment where it is safe because you can't force people to do things it's free will but the decriminalization of sex work is the best way to protect the health and the human rights of sex workers in south africa many sex workers describe cases of rape corruption and harassment by police officers This was in a report that was released by the Human Rights Watch and Sex Workers Education and Advocacy Task Force showed that many black women with limited formal education choose to sell sex as a viable means of making a living and supporting their children and dependents because a sex worker with a primary school education can earn nearly six times more than typical income from formal employment such as a domestic worker. South Africa currently uses the total criminalization model, which means the sale and purchase of sex is illegal. Linda Dumba, the Limpopo Provincial Coordinator for Sisonke, a national movement started by sex workers, said that many sex workers in Limpopo were forced to have sex with police officers as a form of bail. Police extort sex workers in Limpopo who come from Malawi, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. And they especially face a double stigma because they're foreign nationals, so some of them aren't documented and they fear deportation if they do not have sex with these police officers. In 2013, the Sex Workers Education and Advocacy Task Force estimated that there were between 121,000 and 167,000 prostitutes in South Africa. According to the World Health Organization, international figures show that female sex workers are 13.5% more likely to be living with HIV than any other woman of reproductive age. In Asia, female sex workers are almost 30% more likely to be living with HIV. Modeling studies indicate that decriminalizing sex work could lead to a 46% reduction in new HIV infections in sex workers over 10 years. Eliminating sexual violence against sex workers could lead to a 20% reduction in new HIV infections. When it comes to reaching out or aiming to support sex workers, there are a ton of organizations. There's a global network of sex work program, joined united nations program south african law reform commission program african sex workers alliance sex workers outreach project usa open society foundations international union of sex workers generally there's a lot of ways that you can support sex workers if you choose to and now i'm gonna segment into the part where i share the opinions of my very beloved co-host at this particular section and this time around i had done it differently because i assigned a question or a prompt that would encourage their opinion because i didn't want like a vague outlook throughout so i'm going to introduce those and then i bid you farewell my panel it's obviously more efficient to introduce them once and for all so first off we'll have etse who answers the sex work count as work secondly we'll have alex who will answer can the stigma around sex work impact mental health third would be answered by carisha and it is is enough being done to protect sex workers then we have latita answering is there a double standard with sex workers and their gender then we have plamiri who says your opinion on the world and how you view transgender so basically her opinion and then we have imran ending it off with do you think religion has heavily influenced our opinion towards sex work i think that sex work is work because it's easily comparable to normal work that people do where you go to your place of work like like an office but this time <laughs> it might be a strip club or whatever and um you have work hours you have breaks and everything um yeah
1: i say yes the stigma around sex can affect the mental because imagine okay imagine 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 your guy and you see this chick she looks like miriam she looks like you then you're like damn that's hard and you're like i'd like to test so now you spend time chasing her and then like you get to it and then eventually she's like you know what i'm gonna let him smash now all that hard work and effort and then like you put your best work into the sex like you know you think you're giving her the time of her life and then she posts the next day on some throwing shade low-key shit like yo why do i always get the niggas with small dicks and stuff like that and yo bro like imagine like you you'll be insecure as hell because like you'll be like yo maybe she told her friends or some shit then you'll be like nah and you'll start thinking like yeah what else has she told now I can't get any chick and then you'll just like fall into depression and shit like in years I mean if you have a relationship with terrible sex but it still works then that's dope but if you have a relationship with terrible sex and you just like nah and then like you guys getting vibes like nah like you're gonna be strangers in a relationship like you're just not gonna talk with each other and yeah uh, i don't i don't even understand what i'm saying like i'm high as fuck right now but i'm still like yo i'm gonna type it out though still because i don't think you understood a single thing i said in this whole year um but yeah
2: So the topic i'll be covering is protection for sex workers is enough being done for them and if so what are the acts um, of protection in various countries especially all over the world prostitution is actually illegal which is prostitution is a part of sex work so in amsterdam it's actually known for being legal i also know that singapore is also legal for sex work But in places such as America, and if I'm not wrong, in South Africa, it is not a legal job. So firstly, i would talk about Singapore and how it is legal and how things work in a country where sex work is legal and what protection or what forms of protection they gain from the government. And then I'll talk about how places such as America and South Africa, it is not legal and how much of protection or how little protection these workers have. So in Singapore... Prostitution is legal, um, and so and brothels are usually safe. We actually have red light districts in Singapore where you can find you can specifically go to for prostitution um, if you're looking for an escort, etc. And so, in order to maintain a safe environment for prostitutes, they get their own specific ID. You can see this as in two different lights. For example, the fact that they most probably they're getting a different ID to be singled out of the rest of society which could be seen as a bad way or you can also see it as a way where oh this person is a sex worker they have this type of ID identification to know so that medical professionals will know beforehand if anything happens to the sex worker that oh these medical procedures needs to be taken place or this person may have um, an infection or a disease a sexual disease or sexual uh, infection so in Singapore to to make sure that prostitutes or sex workers are protected they have routine checkups so every two or three months or I think a month or so each um, prostitute that has that is legal and that has applied for the license are um, they must go for a health checkup to check if anything has happened to them and to also check if they have any sexual diseases or infections to make sure that it prevents the spread of, for example, HIV and and all sorts of sexual diseases. If the sex worker do contract these diseases, they will um, attempt to track down the person that gave it to them in order to prevent an outbreak um, in the whole nation. It also aids the prostitute or the sex worker because they will then go through a series of medical treatments to stop the infection from spreading and becoming worse. So that is one of the ways that sex workers are protected in Singapore. Um other ways is that for example it is very safe it is a very safe country so not much really happens. You don't hear anything about any abusers because if a worker or any if a worker is abused they are entitled to go to the police, and it'll become a, a big investigation. And the brothel or the person will be charged. The brothel will be charged for allowing said abuse, and the person that um abused the worker will then be, be charged by and get a trial, etc. They will get they will be punished basically. And so, let if we're thinking about that's the situation in a country where. Prostitution is legal and sex work is legal, so therefore it is accepted and it is better compared to nations without, with, where it is illegal. So if we talk about America, there have been cases where recently, um, a county or two counties are losing their, the battle of making prostitution legal in the country. So, a lot of sex workers look to prostitution as a way of gaining um, finance. And by the fact that they are trying to make it illegal, it's ruining their finances. And that is a way of inhibiting the protection. It is a way of um, preventing this person from a financial stability, which I think that's an attack instead of protecting the person. Um, another way that they're, they're not protecting sex workers is the fact that the they're actually shamed for being sex workers more compared to places where it's accepted. Um, That is a verbal abuse situation. That's a verbal abuse in a sense. Um, some sex workers that work illegally, they actually have the worst conditions because since they're working illegally, they're going to have to meet in dodgy areas, for example, in weird streets, walking around. Like, this is also known in South Africa, where they have to walk around in streets and, like, um, really short clothes in the dark and they could be mugged, they could be robbed, they could be um, raped, they could be killed for any at any time of the night especially when they're doing their job and they're dressing very seductively um, whereas in places where it is legal, um, that usually is not the case because if anything happens the person will know that they will be charged and the law is, protects these workers. So is there enough being done to protect sex workers? I think, in the context that in the lawful and the juris and the judicial context, yes, there is enough being done in countries where prostitution is legal. In countries that prostitution is not legal, it is not. There's not much protection being done because all of the all they're getting is verbal abuse, physical abuse, um, getting robbed, robbed, killed, mugged, um in all manners and everywhere in the place there's south africa there's america there's some parts of asia some parts of europe and also if we're talking about protection we also need to address the fact that um there's still a stigma against sex work especially if people that work in the porn industry in the um stripping if they're in the porn industry if they're stripping if they're just prostitutes there's a lot of people that are against these, these types of work because they do not consider it work and so they are prone and they receive a lot of verbal abuse, especially online or in real life. Um, you get a lot of people degrading them for the job that they're doing. So that is another way of not being protected because that is that could be seen as discrimination and hate speech. So. That is one way that the government and everyone basically is not protecting sex workers because they're being degraded Um. And yeah, so is, are sex workers protected or is, is enough being done to protect sex workers? I would say no, because only in a few countries in the world, sex work is legal and the government actually protects the, these workers. In many parts of the world, sex work is, still goes on. Prostitution is still present, but the government has made prostitution illegal and therefore the consequences are far worse for prostitutes. Especially if maybe they contract an STD or if they are raped, if they go report it, they're going to have to say that they committed a criminal act by charging money for sexual acts, which will then go against them in a case if they were, for example, raped by a customer or client. Sorry. And so I believe that sex, that sex workers are not being protected enough, especially in this day and age. But I do think that things may get better as our generation Um, with our generation because we're now becoming more open and more um, compassionate towards this sort of work and we're finally accepting and we're more accepting compared to previous generations that shunned sex work and sex and everything sexual, basically. Thank you.
3: Okay, so... I chose the worldview of transgender sex workers. I'm so tired, bro. Yeet! Let's do this. Don't make you sad about it. You told me you loved me. Why did you leave me all alone? And the plane is over right so if you're going to tackle something such as the worldview of transgender sex workers i feel like it needs to be unpacked and when you unpack something like that you start with the absolute core of it and the core would be worldview of sex workers but this is before we bring in the transgender business in and if you look at the worldview of sex workers it's almost ironic, because the world revolves around money, sex, and power. So, despite that blended that obvious fact about the, I would say, sexual behaviors of humans and of society, we still look down, or rather, let's not generalize, a lot of people look down on sex workers because it's seen as indecent and sinful and... It encourages celibacy and whatnot. So you already have that negative that negative view on sex workers. If you bring in transgender, the thing about you know, unfortunately the the unfortunate little section of the LGBTQ plus communities that with transgenders they are They are hated and the hatred comes out of displeasure in seeing such a drastic change because changing your sex is a drastic change and there's hatred for that and it's uncomfortable and it makes people uncomfortable. So to bring transgenders into the business of sex work and um, escorting and whatnot, whatever you want to call it. It becomes, it becomes tricky because there are so many ways for you to look at it. You could look at it from a viewpoint of um, they, uh, well, it's not fair to the people who are buying the sex because they, it's not like it's on their foreheads that they are transgender, you know, you fi- you find out one way or another. And this is assuming that the person hasn't, hasn't, um, hasn't had any reconstructive surgery and had genitals removed or included or whatnot I'm not sure how it works right but you could argue and say oh but it's not fair the person who's buying the sex they thought they were date they, they were going to be serviced by someone who is female from the get-go and the get-go being birth right but it's a weak argument it's flawed it's flimsy, you pick it up, it falls apart, it's, it's, it's useless. So you look at the fact that th- they would be avoided, and avoided because no one wants to have that experience, because it's not something that is typical, it's not on the norm, it is rather unorthodox and outside of the box, and people aren't really comfortable with exploring, and you if you look at the way that something is done, if it's done in a particular way all the time, you become used to it. And relationships, in terms of the buyer for sex and the sex giver, you know, the person who's servicing, the relationship is as simple as I give you a bunch of money and you perform sex acts with me. We're not going to get specific about what it is, but yes, And once you have transgender, I feel like, in fact, the entire symbiosis changes because you could possibly, as a transgender, in that position, you could be faced with someone who isn't, like, is not going to take the discovery very well. And they could end up being violent and the person's life is in danger. So, coming full circle and concluding, I think that with such a topic, it is unfortunate that there's always going to be someone at the end, in this case transgenders, who will be getting the worst of it.
0: Imran's opinion will be delivered, however, it will be delivered by a voice that is in no way connected to Imran or the opinion. Just clarifying.
1: Yeah, obviously. Like sex workers are cool. I
3: wouldn't smash them though, because, like, oh, hate. Those religion makes it seem like sex workers are bad and shit, but I don't give a fuck. I just don't strictly follow all those rules. So
1: basically, like what I'm saying is, if I'm alone and horny one day, I'm gonna get smashed.
0: So these are questions that I definitely, definitely thought about. And I need to relay both LaTita and Milo's opinion, my lovely last minute friends. And LaTita had said that I agree that there is a double standard with sex workers and their genders. With men, they aren't slut shamed if they say that they are sex workers. If a male were to say he's a stripper, people wouldn't automatically assume the worst from him. However, if a woman to say that she's a stripper she's immediately slut shamed and ridiculed it's as if men are seen to be just doing an artistic job on stage but women are immediately seen as selling their bodies and not having any value Milo says if two consenting adults wish to have sex then what concern is it of mine be it paid or not as for sex workers I respect the hustle I probably would never date one same goes for politicians I wouldn't want a relationship with people who fuck we're living so yeah as usual i'm always very interested in hearing you guys thoughts i found this very interesting because we've all you know generally been told that sex work is you know very shady and it can be dangerous etc but there is this new wave rising around where it is seen as a profession that one can choose and aspire for but it's it's one that i don't know i'm very lost in the argument as well because i very much believe that people do what they want to do i believe with that who is it or how is it any of my business what someone's doing with their body if they're enjoying it if it's what they want sure and the only thing that got me was the story by emily because it does make one wonder if this is another an, an extreme way of trying to prove feminism but then again maybe it's not maybe it's just people and their bodies and their free will and it works for some doesn't work for others so when it comes to the questions like does sex work counters work i will wholeheartedly agree it requires a very strong woman and the stigma around mental health sure i feel like it can influence it and a lot of these questions that are very, like, thought-provoking, but I don't want to take too much time in addressing them. But there is a double standard, I believe. And is enough being done to protect them? No. And the, wor- the world doesn't really acknowledge transgender sex workers. Barely. So these things are all puzzle pieces to this huge puzzle that, for the most part, I'm very, very um, decisive on. And there's many ways to look at it but like i say you know what? we can't control people but at the very least if people are going to choose to they should have the right to be able to do it safely and i will leave you guys with a very i guess positive quote about free will god created every man to be free the ability to choose whether to live free or enslaved right or wrong happy or in fear is something called free will every man was born with free will some people use it and some people use any excuse not to nobody can turn you into a slave unless you allow them nobody can make you afraid of anything unless you allow them nobody can tell you to do something wrong unless you allow them god never created you to be a slave man did god never created division or set up any borders between brothers man did God never told you, hurt or kill another man. Man did. And in the end, when God asks you, who told you to kill one of my children and you tell them, my leader, he will ask you, are they your God? And this is from Susie Kazim. Rise up and salute the sun. The writings of Susie Kazim. definitely have a good week let me know what you guys think there will be another episode coming out in like three four days because i gotta keep that ball rolling and catch up for what i missed out on anyway i send love i send vibrations i send good news coming your way good vibes positivity because it's all we need there's enough negativity so until next time bye